morning, you may remember last Sunday morning, we were talking about uh, covenant fidelity and how marriage allows us to change and grow. And we didn't have our wedding photograph up from Harry and I 44 years ago. We had a little technical problem. And so in response to thousands of cards and letters and emails, here it is today. Harry... When I do these things, my wife says, you're such an idiot. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Um, Harriet hasn't changed a whole lot, but we're not sure what happened to Pastor Tom. Those were the days I was slim, and I had lots of dark hair. And I did say, you know, I had, those were the days I had Buddy Holly glasses. And some people said to me, who is Buddy Holly? Oh, Come on, that'll be the day. Don't you know that? Okay, you didn't miss that. You didn't get that one either. Um, anyway, that's, that was from 44 years ago. And uh, marriage allows us to change and grow and all kinds of stuff. And, and love one another um, for a lot of years. So thank you for that. Okay? Good. That's it done. <laughs> I was, I was going to bring you also a baby picture of me, but I decided not to do that. You don't really want to see that. So. I think um, somebody said to me a couple of weeks ago in Victoria, why do you still keep going over to Vancouver every week? I mean, the ferry's a hassle, and we're now into bad weather and all that kind of stuff. And can I tell you very honestly, I enjoy you people. I really do. I have a lot of fun with you. And I think you've learned that you can laugh with me a little bit. We can relax and whatever. And, and so thank you for just being you. I really appreciate you as a church very much. And that was our wedding. So and, uh, whatever. <coughs> Here's some questions to create some scenarios for us this morning about honesty and stealing. Here a couple. Three actually. Let's imagine you've just gone home from shopping with two young children. They're tired. They need to go for their afternoon nap. It's pouring rain. After all, it's Vancouver. And as you unpack the groceries and get their coats and their boots off, put them to bed, a little packet of candies falls out from one of their pockets. It's obvious they've taken it when you were busy and distracted in the grocery store. And the question now is, what are you going to do? Do you get them dressed and return the candies to the store on this wet, rainy day. You're tired. It's raining. What do you do? We'll come back to that. <coughs> you work in an office where people regularly take home little things like pens and stationery items and um, post-it notes and supplies for personal use. And after all, like, everybody does that. It's a big company. They're never going to miss it. It's no big deal. What do you do? The line at the checkout is long. It's Friday night, grocery night. The trainee cashier is working as fast as she can. People are getting frustrated. And suddenly you realize that as she's trying to work quickly with people, she has given you $5 extra in change. And if you stop her to recount that, people behind you are going to get mad. You only have a split second to react. What do you do? 
You see, the, the order and the harmony of society is held together by a very flimsy thread. For the most part, the great majority of people live and abide by the, the rules of our community. We've, we've agreed that when you're driving that red means red and stop and green means go. We know which side of the road we drive on. Rules are there and we follow the most part whether we really like them all or not. But let me take you back to the time in the Old Testament when there's a nation traveled out of Egypt into the wilderness and every few days things had to be packed up because remember the cloud and the pillar of fire when it moved on you moved on and no doubt in that constant moving and packing and repacking and unpacking some things get forgotten there's no lost and found department in the wilderness there are no lost and tents you might in fact be away from hello Sounds like my theory this afternoon. Um, you might be away from your tent for some while while you fetch water. And you can't lock up your camel. What do you do? You see, the life of that community is held together by a very flimsy thread in the human spirit. The thread of honesty and trust. And when you think about it, that is still the way it is today. Without the approval and the support of the majority, the work of the police would be, go from hard to impossible and we would experience the chaos of anarchy. Remember the line that is like a dark drumbeat all the way through the book of Judges. And every man, every person did that which was right in their own sight. We saw that last year in Vancouver at the Stanley Cup riots. How hard it really was for the police to control a mob. And some of the few people who have been charged so far said, I just kind of got caught up in the heat of the moment. And went with everybody else. There's a suggestion a thought in history that the French Revolution in which so many people died in the blood and the chaos of that time the French Revolution and the seeds that were in it did not cross over into England because of the growing influence of the Methodist Church and people like Samuel Wesley you see they were sowing the good seed of reformation in people's lives rather than revolution so this thread, this invisible glue that creates community comes from a very basic notion as we continue our series through the Ten Commandments is which is you don't steal. In so many ways that can be questioned in our society. You get what we'll call the ethics of consensus. Well just sort of, you know, everybody's doing it so why don't I just join in? You get the ethics of pragmatism. The end, the end justifies the means. I need some of that stuff from the office. And after all, it's a big company. They'll never know and they'll never miss it. You get the ethics of selfishness, which is the old to me. Insurance companies tell us that we all pay a high cost for crime and theft. If you've ever had your car stolen, your house or your condo <coughs> broken into, no, you know that. I read an article recently that said about one-third of all the insurance claims and household policies are false. People are simply trying to get back more than was stolen. One third are false. So what is stealing? Well, let's define it this morning. Obviously, it means taking something that does not belong to you, belongs to something else, and you say, I think I'll have that, and you steal it. Obvious meaning. Secondly, can I suggest that stealing is also squandering something? We may not steal it. But if we misuse something, if we steal time from an employer, for example, we're really stealing. 
And thirdly, it is withholding what is needed. We're stealing when we do not give what's needed. The book of Proverbs says to us, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your labor, I'll come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it now. All of us understand, I think, that... um, the principles that our bank accounts work on the principles of deposits and withdrawals. The trouble for most of us is we're actually better at one than the other. But there's a, there's a different kind of bank account I'd like you to think about this morning. It's an internal one. And it also operates with deposits and withdrawals. And the interaction of these internal deposits and withdrawals is what creates character. It's what builds our internal moral compass. Let me define character for you this morning. I define it this way. Character is the courage to develop and practice our internal moral agenda. Apart from the pressure of other people's opinions and expectations. And also external circumstances. You understand that? It means that we will decide what we decide apart from other people's opinions and expectations of what they think we should do or what everybody else is doing and also from external circumstances. It is the courage to develop and practice that internal moral agenda. In other words, we do not live by what other people think and do. We do not follow the crowd. We're willing to have an internal moral agenda that we have forged out of our own lives. Traits such as honesty are not created in a classroom or a church Sunday morning. Nor are they learned in a seminar or from reading a good book about character. Character is only forged in the heat of real life situations in which we're either, as we'll see this morning, investing in ourselves and making a credit in our inner life, developing and nurturing our inner moral agenda apart from anybody else. Let me break it down for you this morning in three major statements. You've got to fill in a lot of blanks. When we are honest, we are investing in ourselves. I don't think we often realize that. And when we steal, we are robbing from ourselves. The Bible is no specific word for character. It doesn't have one word for character. But you would understand with me, I think, that it's a theme that's woven all through the scriptures. The book of Proverbs describes character as our name. We might also call it a reputation. It says, for example, in Proverbs 22, it says, a good name is better than riches. In other words, our character, our reputation, our inner moral agenda is better than our riches. So how do we make these positive deposits in our internal bank account? Two ideas for you this morning are crucial. Number one, to understand that smaller decisions are the training ground for larger decisions. It's too easy to think that small decisions don't really matter. And somehow we'll keep our moral stamina, we'll save our moral strength up for some really big, large decision that's to come. Can I tell you this morning, nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, these small decisions in our lives, which may appear very insignificant and trivial, are actually the training ground for large decisions. We learn in small events... To make the kinds of decisions that will character in our lives when some big decision comes along. Young people, young adults need to realize that. Children, we need to realize that. Those daily events in our lives when it's too easy to yield. Frankly, when no one is watching, those small choices which we face every day deeply matter in the development of our character. For most of us, 
The development of our character will be built on countless small decisions. Each of them apparently trivial in themselves. Most of them apparently insignificant. But more than we know, they, more than we know, they shape and they train our lives. <laughs> they look forward, you see, to perhaps those few times when the moral decision we make will be absolutely crucial for us and for the future. That's why it's crucial to develop character in young children. We cannot wait until later. We have to start now. So, first of all, small decisions are the basis for larger decisions. Second major issue is this. Private victories come before public victories. We want people to see us as honest and upright and public. Politicians talk about their public image. They're actually using the word image. They're almost in the very opposite of how the Bible understands image. The way to this is we will need to develop character in private where no one is watching us. Whenever we want to be seen with credibility and integrity in public, we have to win that battle first. We have to have a victory in that area in our private lives. We cannot be one person in private and a different kind of person in public. Someone has said character is what you are when no one is looking. That is the road to authenticity. That private victories come before public victories. That's the road to authenticity. We cannot win battles in public that we have not won in private. We will only will win public battles when we face that enemy in private in our own lives. When we wage that war against some inner opponent and we have fought and we have won. Now these two ideas together... When you bring them together, they create what's called the education of the conscience. That means we nurture, we cultivate in our lives the fact that there must be congruity. There must be agreement between what we believe, who we are in the inside, and how we live and act before others. Our inner world and our outer world must agree. When someone asks, or even thinks for a moment to themselves... How much can I get away with? That very question reveals their lack of internal honesty. The reason for this is that everything that's genuine in our lives always flows from the inside out. It never flows from the outside in. A lot of emphasis today on values. We want to be a value-driven society, a value-driven community. Well, let's slow down for a minute. A gang may have values what it means to belong. But this does not mean that the gang's values are based on principles. You see, principles come before values. They're more foundational. Principles are fundamental. And principles, we need to understand, are based on truth. That is hard for us as Christians because our society talks today about values as being important. And they are. We want value-based education. We watched the television program here and I some years ago, I think on PBS, um, about trying to teach young people about value-based conversation. The point was that instead of using language that puts down, there's a lot of discussion these days about bullying, we have to learn to use language and vocabulary that affirms. But we live in a culture that does not believe in absolute truth. So you have to ask, what are the values based on? it seems today that the number one virtue is not to be valiant for truth, but to be tolerant of truth. Sorry, tolerant of values. 
So we need people whose lives are based on principles. No matter which way the wind is blowing. When the moral fiber of a nation collapses, it is not because of major decisions made in the corridors of power. Rather, it is because ordinary people in ordinary places stopped being honest about the ordinary things in their lives. We need to understand that. When we're honest, we build into ourselves. When we're dishonest and still, we rob from ourselves. But when we're honest, we're also investing in community. When we steal, we steal from community. Think for a moment. Theft does more than steal things. It steals trust. That destroys the reality of community. It means, I can no longer trust you. So we lock our homes and our cars. But we still don't really trust one another. So we buy alarms for our homes and anti-theft devices for our cars that we still lock. We need to remember that the work of the cross and the work of the Spirit is not just about saving people. It's really about transforming people. Our goal is not personal transformation only. It's also about transforming the community. (coughs) So Paul writes to the Ephesian church, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with his hands, they may have something to share with those in need. You see, Paul says very simply, see these hands? They used to be the hands of a pickpocket or the hands that stole. You've got to take these hands now and turn them into something positive. You've got to do something useful with them. Something instead of taking away from the community, you will actually now begin to build into the community. It's an interesting truth. He says, there is no such thing as a born-again thief who continues to steal. The hands that used to steal, be nimble and picking pockets or whatever, now have to be turned towards honest work. The person who took from the community now has to be transformed, has to be the kind of person who gives back into the community. Three steps bring a change of lifestyle. First of all, I think there's remorse. That means we're sorry for what we've done. I think one of the struggles that I sense in our culture today is we have a great lack of remorse. Most people are not sorry for what they did. They're just sorry that they were stupid enough to get caught. The next time they'll be smarter, which means they'll try not to get caught. But we need remorse. If we want to be changed and transformed in our lives and really see our lives before God in a way, there will need to be a remorse. Secondly, there will need to be repentance. Repentance, the Greek word repentance is metanoia. And it really means having a new thought. That there's a sense of, that not only am I sorry, but now I'm sorry enough to change. (coughs) My feet and my life used to be moving in this direction. But now with repentance, I'll turn myself around and I'll head in a whole new direction. That is the work of conversion. It turns our lives and our hearts and our minds. It turns our whole being in a whole new direction. That's repentance. Third one, you don't hear this very much, that's restitution. That means we pay back. We go back and make amends. If we don't have the money, then perhaps we pay it off, we work it off in service. We do not do that for the sake of the person we robbed from, we do that first of all for our own sake. Restitution is not because we want forgiveness. 
But restitution really means that we have received forgiveness. And now because we are forgiven people, I want to go back to the person I stole from and say, what can I do to make that up? I worked a while ago, many years ago, with a young man who had a terrible reputation in our um, um, community in Victoria for breaking enters. His parents were in our congregation. And through some movement of the grace of God in his life, he realized he needed to turn his life around. So we talked about remorse. I think he was genuinely sorry. We talked about repentance. Setting his feet in a whole new direction. Getting a new job, a new trade, new skills, and whatever. We talked about restitution. He had absolutely no idea of all of the people he'd stolen from. The list was way too long for him to remember all the kinds of things he'd stolen from the house. But I talked to him and said, well, what would it mean to remember as many as you could? And go back to those homes and you've spent the money or whatever, but maybe, maybe you offer to work for a day or two days or a weekend. I'm raking leaves as the church was doing last weekend around this neighborhood, working there, stacking firewood, whatever it might be. But you go back and you offer some work in restitution for that. And sadly he looked at me and he said, you've got to be kidding. He said, there's no way in the world I'm prepared to do that. He said, I thought I was supposed to be forgiven. I said, the whole point is you are forgiven. But now in some freedom, you go back and you pay some things back. I said, you're investing in your own soul in the community when you do that. I still remember, he'd get up and he said, there is no way. He turned and walked away. I have no idea what happened to the rest of his life after that. People laugh at that. Restitution. But these are the steps that set people free. This is, when, this is when people make a deposit into their own internal bank account and that of community. We may face adversity in life. All of you know that with me. We may face difficult situations that press in upon us. Situations that demand that we dig deep into some well inside us. And hopefully we've been investing in that. But that kind of adversity or pressure never, never damages us on the inside. It's dishonesty and deceitfulness that damages us on the inside. We're damaged by anger, by bitterness, not by hard work, not by difficulty, not by stress. We need to understand that. So are we investing ourselves in the community or not? Another thought, when we are honest, we are investing in the beauty of God. When we steal, we are robbing God of His credibility. Appreciated the thought and the work of the worship team this morning um, about the beauty of the Lord and, um, and how we just really want to invest in that. Book of Titus. Paul's writing to young Titus. Just a few chapters. He says to them in Titus, teach slaves, not to, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. To try to please them and not talk back to them. And he says, verse 10, not to steal from them. But to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You see, slavery was part of the fabric of the Greco-Roman world. The Bible, and particularly the Apostle Paul writing in the New Testament, did not try to change slavery. 
It took about 1,800 more years for that to come. Uh, really through the work of William Wilberforce and the um, Parliament in Great Britain before slavery was changed. But what Paul did, Paul tried to transform slavery from the inside. He didn't challenge it as an institution. He tried to change the slaves. And so it was expected in households that slaves would steal. Perhaps many of them did that, frankly, just to survive each day. They stole some food from the kitchen. They stole some trinkets from around the house. And and so that they could go to the market and sell them and and get something. So you see, in in the world of slavery, this petty pilfering was a way of life. Paul's advice, his challenge to Christian slaves is straightforward. You don't have to miss it. He just says, stop. No more. That's the end of your stealing. And note the interesting reason. It's not connected to our personal credibility, although that's important. It's not connected to our testimony, although that's also important. Paul doesn't say to them, um, by the way, you shouldn't steal. Because you're not a Christian, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're, you're a Christ follower person. And you want your witness and your testimony before your master and his household to really shine and look good. So don't steal. That's important. He doesn't say that. No stealing is connected to the doctrine and teaching about teaching about God. It is linked to the beauty of God. He says, it is what will make God attractive. And we are facing a humble, humbling realization when we live and act with honesty in those small unseen acts of daily life we are making God attractive it makes God look good we are investing as we were singing earlier this morning we are investing in the beauty of the Lord all of us probably know someone who says I don't want anything to do anymore with God or church or Christianity. I'm finished. I don't want anything to do with that. And the reason is because of what some Christian did to them. We've all heard that. We all were that. And when that happens, God looks ugly. His beauty is made unattractive. Here's the antidote to that. It is character forged by those small, almost invisible daily choices where belief and behavior walk hand in hand. And it creates, as Pastor Cindy was praying with us this morning, it creates a fragrance, an aroma, a perfume that makes God attractive to people. So the question we need to ask every day this week is, am I investing in the character of God? Am I making God attractive to people? 2 Corinthians picks up this idea. Einar shared it with us a couple of weeks. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, and also, he says, to those who are perishing. So let me go back to where we started. You go home on a wet Vancouver afternoon. And a little thing of candy falls out from your groceries. And you know you didn't put it there. It's raining. Kids are tired. 
What do you do? What do you do? Everybody takes some small items home from the office. Big company, they're not going to miss it. Who cares? Doesn't matter. What do you do? The trainee cashier on a Friday night and it's busy and there's a line at the express checkout and the person behind you has got 14 items and they only should have 10. She gives you $5 too much change. Do you stop her? Incur the wrath of all these people behind you? What do you do? Remember, we're always making internal deposits or withdrawals in our inner life, in the area of character, the community, and ultimately, ultimately, to the character of God. In the final analysis, you know, Jesus Christ fleshed out the life of God and he made God attractive. And even as he hung on the cross where it says there was no beauty in him, he was making God attractive. The cruelty was demonstrating that God is love. And the ultimate irony is this. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And in the final moment, faced with the beauty of God, one of them turned. You stand with me, please. So, Father, somewhere in the rest of today and through this week, we may encounter small, almost invisible incidents in which we're faced with moral decisions. Do we invest in ourselves, your character in us, or do we say it doesn't matter? Will we give an opportunity, Father, to invest in community, build into trust, or take it away? Or perhaps to invest in your beauty? or make you seem ugly what will we do Father may you your spirit bring your word of honesty to us and help us to win small victories so that one day when we fight a major battle we will have the arsenal of weapons in our character help us Father to win battles in private where no one sees because one day we might have to fight that battle in public and we will have the resources and the armor and the internal fortitude to do that help us to more than remember that help us Father live that and to walk it out in your name we pray Amen